Welcome to the Prophecy Club, and happy Thanksgiving to you. So, the situation is this. I'm going to be spending a few days with my family for Thanksgiving. So, we're going to make a fantastic offer for everybody to celebrate the Thanksgiving and the Christmas holidays. So, Prophecy Club started inviting guests, making recordings back in June of 1993. Over 19 years, we made... Uh, about 330 recordings, 160 different guests, and we've offered these typically for about $30 each. Some of them are doubles for like $50. However, today you can go and watch about 300 recordings valued about $6,000 at WatchProphecyClub.com for a gift of $20 a month or $200 per year. That's a great deal, but we're about to make it even better. For the month of December... 2021, if you sign up for WatchProphecyClub.com, that's $20 a month or $200 a year, you're going to get the whole month of December, that's right, the whole month of December, free just for signing up, but you got to use the promo code WPC2021. Here's the way you do it. You go to WatchProphecyClub.com, and then you click Get Access Today, You put in the promo code WPC2021, as in Watch Prophecy Club 2021. I'll say it again. So you go to WatchProphecyClub.com, you click Get Access Today, and you put in the promo code WPC2021. You can watch any or all of, if you can watch all of the 300 DVDs during the month of December, free. Now let's go watch Exposing the Illuminati from Within, which is actually a double DVD recorded by Bill Sneblin in April of 2006, one of our most popular DVDs. Welcome to the Prophecy Club, where we provide information and resources with a prophetic warning message to win souls to Jesus and to call people to repentance. In August of 1995, we had Bill Sneblin come in. He had gray hair then too, by the way. <laughs> and uh, he was our guest speaker, one of the early guest speakers. We've had now over 130 of the Prophecy Club. And uh, by the way, I didn't have gray hair then. Uh, I don't know why that's coming out. But anyway, and uh, he made a videotape. Then it was two hours, correction, two, two hour tapes, total four hours of, of information on exposing the Illuminati from within. And it has been one of the most popular videotapes out of the Prophecy Club's 12 years existence, out of those 130 speakers, out of over 250 different titles, and to say when it's consistently been popular through the years with that much competition, that's good. And um, a couple of months ago, uh, someone suggested that we should have him back to retape it, to update it, and also to make it available now on DVD. And so that's why we're here today. So your topic today is Exposing the Illuminati from Within. Bill Sneblin was a satanic and voodoo high priest. He was a second-degree member of the Church of Satan, a New Age guru, an occultist, a channeler, a 90th-degree mason, a Knight Templar, and a member of the Illuminati. In this particular talk, he's going to show you how the conspiracy works and how it uses the Lodge and the highest echelons of power in our country and around the nation, and technology from secret black project operations to form a world government just like Daniel 7.23 and Revelation 1, a correction, Revelation 13 says, 13.7 to be specific. 
Will you help me welcome Bill Sneblin? <laughs> Glad to have you, Bill. Okay, yes. It is great to be here. Uh, and I was very excited when uh, Stan offered the opportunity for me to redo this because um, a lot of new stuff has come out, a lot of new uh, abilities to to produce things that weren't around. It's just amazing the technological things that have happened in the last decade. So uh, I'm real excited about it. Uh, from the introduction, uh, I'm sure a lot of you think, how could anybody be that messed up? that he would get involved in that many things in one lifetime because <laughs> at that point, I mean, I don't believe in reincarnation, amen? And so I was, you know, doing all this stuff before I got born again, obviously. I stopped doing it then. And uh, so to do all of these things, people say, well, first of all, what made you so, so evil? Yes, that's a good word for it, evil. Uh, and uh, actually, you know, I, I, I will try and share what I think the, the problem was, but I, I had very good parents. I had no excuses from that standpoint. I, mean, I wasn't one of these poor kids that was beaten or locked in a closet or anything like that. I was, you know, very much a leave it to beaver kid growing up. In fact, that was my favorite TV show, not that anything to do with it, but, uh, but a couple of things happened. And uh, the first one, was essentially that I was out doing the trick-or-treat thing. And uh, back then, this is, this is, see, I was born in 1949, so we're talking like probably 1959, 1960. You never heard anything about Halloween being bad back then. Uh, I mean, especially I happened to have been born and raised Catholic, very devout Catholic. And, you know, some of you may not know this, the Catholic Church is actually what brought Halloween to America. Uh, so they saw nothing wrong with Halloween. Before before the wave of Irish and German immigrants, and I can say this because I'm Irish and German in part, uh, came over here, Halloween was illegal. Did you know that? Most, most of the 13 colonies and most of the early states, it was illegal. But there was no teaching on that. My parents didn't know anything about it, so they, they let me go out and do my little thing. And one year, I think it was about 11, 12 years old, I was out walking with my best buddy. It was a beautiful, starry October night. And I was walking down the street. And I just happened to look up in the sky because I was sort of an astronomy buff even as a kid. And I saw, I just was frozen by what I saw because instead of the sky being full of stars, instead it was like this black cavern. And it was covered with black leathery things from horizon to horizon. And it looked, the only thing I can describe it is what I've seen on TV. It's like being inside of a cave that's full of bats. You know, it's just like thousands of bats except these things had little red eyes, which I don't think really bats have that feature, and they were staring down at me with these red eyes. And I could feel these eyes like going into my soul, just like burning their way into the very heart of my being. And I felt this th thrill, this kind of unclean thrill go through me. I had no idea what it was. And I just sort of stopped, and I was transfixed by this. And I just stared there, and it was, like, it was almost like I was impaled by those eyes. I couldn't move. And my friend had kept walking and, and he stopped and noticed I was kind of going like that. And he said, hey Bill, what's going on? And I looked at him and I looked back up at the sky and the sky was back. There were the stars again. The spell, so to speak, was broken. But from that time on, I began to have a fascination for things outré, for things weird. I started, in fact, uh, believe it or not, 
by I think the age of 13, I was already involved with getting into UFOs, parapsychology, haunted houses, ESP, all of this stuff. And that's kind of remarkable for someone who is never allowed to see a horror movie, never allowed, I don't think I saw a science fiction movie until I was 14 or 15 years old. Because, of course, back then there wasn't much on TV, and my parents wouldn't let me go to those kind of things. So here I am, I'm getting into all this stuff. Why? And I got really obsessed with UFOs. Uh, I mean, I, I would read everything I get my hands on, which in those days was not an awful lot. I was a member of NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, which is one of the earlier UFO organizations. And uh, in fact, when my parents would drive around the country on vacation, I'd have to arm wrestle my dad into stopping and visiting all these UFO sites, like or a haunted house, a famous haunted house, or or some cemetery where the gravestone moved around, or some some bizarre thing. Or I mean, was, I was addicted to to weirdness. Let's face it. So, you know, I think that can partially be traced back to that very thing, to the fact that I had, you know, my parents had unwittingly allowed me to walk out on a night which is considered by Satanists to be the devil's birthday and to be out there unprotected because it never occurred to my parents to pray for me before I went out the door on Halloween night. Uh, and I was out there unex unprotected. So then the next thing that happened is I, I w even at that point, I, from the time I was a youngster, I wanted to be a Catholic priest. That was my avid desire. I mean, so bad that when I was a little kid, I would actually cut up my mother's bed sheets and color them to make them into vestments. So I had it bad. And so I went to Loris College, which was the, like the minor seminary college in Iowa uh, for you know, people who want to be a priest. Now, an interesting thing, you know, a, a funny thing happened on the way to the priesthood, as they say. What happened was there was a professor of theology, because of course if you're going to be a priest, you take theology courses. And there was a professor of theology, a layperson, layman, who nevertheless had a Ph.D. And he started telling us all how, first of all, I don't understand this, the Catholic Church teaches that the priest is another Christ. In other words, when you go up on that altar and you, you, know, you hold up the host or you hold up the chalice and you say, for this is my body or for this is the blood of the new covenant, you know, etc., you are acting as Christ at that moment. You are literally Jesus Christ, quote-unquote, at that moment. And so, you know, he said, well, if you want to be like Christ, this professor told us, you have to do the kind of stuff Christ did. And that made sense, you know. And then he says, well, you know what Jesus did? He went out and studied under the gurus in India. He went to Egypt and studied under the Magi. He studied with the lamas in Tibet, and he told this story about how there's this monastery where we have all these scrolls that talk about this wise person that came to Tibet called Isa, and that Isa was actually Jesus. And so he said, if you want to be like Christ, if you want to be another Christ, then you have to learn these occult techniques. This is how Jesus turned water into wine. This is how Jesus healed people, walked on water, etc. So... You know, what did I know? I was like 18 or 19 years old. This guy was, you know, like had a Ph.D. and he was a highly respected professor. So I started going out and getting books on the occult, which were few and far between. I actually had to 
join an occult book of the month club in order to get them because in, in anywhere in the town I was living in in Dubuque there was nothing and I finally got a hold of a book on witchcraft and it was by a lady named Sybil Leake and she was the first female witch to come out and actually teach that witchcraft is a religion um, that it isn't just you know like the Wizard of Oz this green ugly lady with warts you know who flies around her broomstick and goes <laughs> like that no that witches are actually a religious group just like Buddhists are just like Jews are just like whatever and so that intrigued me because it looked like here's a religion that that is part of its religious practice actually teaches you how to be psychic how to do these things and especially when I read in some witchcraft book that Jesus was a witch, that he had his coven of 12 apostles, because there's a coven of 13, that's the size of a witch coven, and that each of the apostles had a working partner who was a woman, and that Jesus, of course, had Mary Magdalene. Now, this, I will t this is like 40 years ago, you know, so, you know, all this foo-for-ah about the Da Vinci Code or whatever, well, that, you know, we knew about this stuff 40 years ago. So anyway... I decided I got to be a witch. I was about a sophomore in college at this point. I wrote to the king of the witches. I, I figured, hey, let's go right to the top, right? And um, so uh, he, his name was Alex Sanders, and he was a high-level witch in London. And he gave me the address of a nearby coven where I could go and be initiated because witchcraft is an initiatic religion. You have to go and have someone sort of, you know, kind of zap you to get into witchcraft. So... This is an example of me when I was in college practicing witchcraft. Uh, some people say I looked like Jerry Garcia, you know, but uh, I don't know if I think that's a compliment or not. Anyhow, as you can see, I was kind of the typical hippie witch. Uh, and um, this is actually taken because I was also making movies at the time, and this was a portrait for the film I was directing. Uh, while in college, uh, I did all sorts of things, which I don't have time to go into, but but... I learned how to do trance mediumship. I learned how to do even like occult exorcisms, things like that. So it was, it was a pretty wild ride. By the time I was, a, I think, a senior in college, I decided I didn't want to be a Catholic priest anymore. Big surprise. Uh, for one thing, uh, I'd been at, a, at the uh, St. Rose Priory at that time. It was a Dominican seminary in Dubuque. And, and the guy there was actually practicing the occult. The professors were doing ceremonial magic and thaumaturgy. In fact, how many of you have heard of Matthew Fox? Anybody? Guess not. Well, you're probably not up on apostate teachers. <laughs> Matthew Fox is a very popular writer among very liberal Catholics and Episcopalians and New Agers. And he's the one who coined the term creation spirituality. Uh, creation spirituality is the worship of the earth and the worship of sexuality. It's a kind of an academic word for, for witchcraft. Well, he was at this seminary at that time. He was a Dominican priest. About, I think, 10 or 12 years ago, he was kicked out of the Dominican order by the Roman church for being a, a heretic, but the Episcopalians took him in. So anyway, you know, I'll just let that drop, and you can decide what you want about it. So I decided I, couldn't, I didn't want to do the celibacy thing because I was reading all this stuff in witchcraft about how you have to have a man and a woman, male and female, yin and yang, goddess and god. You know, so I, I figured I didn't want to spend my life being celibate. And so I took a leave of absence when I graduated from college and instead became a music teacher. 
and uh, oddly enough, in a Catholic school. So here I was, a practicing witch, teaching music in a Catholic high school. And I had a pentagram around my neck, and you know, I wore it on top of my necktie and everything every day to work. And I taught the nuns how to do yoga and astrology, and I was giving you know tarot card readings at the church fairs to raise money for the school. And can't imagine why they ultimately fired me. Can you? <laughs> anyway, they only fired me after I raised so much money for them. I don't know. Anyhow, along the way, while I was teaching there, I was, I was doing all this magic because I needed a working partner. I needed a priestess. And I ran into my wife. Uh, this is a picture taken of her at that time, Sharon. And I, I put some of these pictures in here because some people have claimed I really don't have a Sharon. I just made her up to make me look better. You know, because they say, well, she never comes with you. She never speaks, you know, whatever. And I say, here she is. This is Sharon. So, you know, now you know what she looks like. At this time, we already had a coven of six members. This was in 1972. Um, this is a picture of me drawing down the moon on Sharon. That's a, that's a ritual that's done where, where basically you believe the moon goddess comes down and possesses the high priestess of the coven, and then she speaks like an oracle to the, um, to the people, and it's done every full moon. Uh, this is our wedding. We were married in 1974 in a witch wedding. Uh, our wedding cake was a Vulcan Idic, for those of you that might have been into Star Trek at some point. That's the sacred symbol of the planet Vulcan. Uh, and we, of course, blurred out the faces of some of the people present because we didn't want to have them get mad at me. Uh, this is our wedding portrait. The guy in black there was the one of the major leading witches in Milwaukee. All of this actually was done in a park in Dubuque. Uh, you can see we're both kind of the quintessential flower children, you know, with flowers in our hair and green robes and all that kind of stuff. So that was, and then at that point, we went and... Um, went down and studied in Arkansas for a while under the Grand Master Druid of North America. And uh, he's the one that actually taught us a lot of the, a lot of the other things we needed to get into because he, he highly recommended that I should get involved with Freemasonry, that I should get involved with um, Mormonism if I had an opportunity, that these were organizations that were full of occult Luciferian knowledge if one knew how to manipulate it. This is a post-wedding portrait of Sharon. I just put that in there because I'm so proud of my wife. It doesn't have anything to do with the occult, but I just think she's a cutie. Anyhow, still do. Uh, anyway, so this is, we moved to Milwaukee in 19, let's see, 1974 because there were 80 people there that wanted us to train them how to be witches. And so we went there, and partly because I couldn't get a job in Dubuque. It was a bad period in the economy. And um, so we had class after class after class where we were teaching people witchcraft. And we were the, other, the ancillary stuff too, you know, astrology, tarot cards, mediumship, parapsychology, astral travel. And we just, you know, we were a virtually a little free university. We'd have a semester and we'd have about 10 or 15 people. We'd train them and then we'd run them through. And then we'd, we'd and they see you can only have 13 members in a coven. And so we set up two or three different covens, and Sharon became a witch queen, which means someone who has a high priestess who has several covens under her. Uh, one of the people in the coven 
at that time, happened to have a dad who was the junior warden of, of a Masonic Lodge in Heartland, Wisconsin. Now, a junior warden is like one of the top three officers in a Masonic, local Masonic body. And so I thought, well, this, this high-level Druid, the Grand Master of all Druids in North America, whose name, oddly enough, was Eli, he said, if I ever had an opportunity to join the Masons, do so. So I had said, well, can this guy get me into the Masons? And, and so he did. And you see there, that's my certificate for, if, I don't know how well you can see it, but um, all of these things are in my books if you want to see better documentation. On uh, March 24, 1977, I was finally raised to the sublime degree of a Master Mason, which is the, the top of the Blue Lodge degrees. Uh, subsequently, I went on and went through York Rite, went through Scottish Rite, and went through the Shrine. So basically, I did essentially everything one could do in Masonry and, and even some stuff that most people can't do in Masonry, as we'll see later. Along the way, now this might seem a radical change of direction, but a funny thing happened to me. I, was, I had just been made a high priest of the Druidic Order, I was a high priest of witchcraft, and we were down in Chicago visiting some friends at the Temple of the Pagan Way, which is another occult organization. Chicago is full of them. Anyway, we all got together, and, and guess what movie was playing at that time? Big, huge movie, The Exorcist. And so we thought, oh, this will be a kick. Let's go see the movie. And so three, and there were like three sets of high priest, high priestess witches. Three couples plus the guy who was the head of the Temple of the Pagan Way in Chicago. And we all sat in this theater, and we were all scared to death. I mean, it was so funny because this, this lady who was sitting next to me, who wasn't Sharon, she was like another high priestess, she grabbed my hand in this like death grip and wouldn't let it go for the whole movie. And I don't know if any of you have, have defiled your minds by seeing that film, but that is probably the evilest movie ever made. And it was so profoundly scary and evil for reasons I don't have time to go into that the, the fellow who we were staying with down there who happened to be an epileptic, he actually had a grand mal seizure that night. It was so, it had hit his nervous system that, that, that violently. And it kind of scared me and I thought, well, gee, maybe I should do something with this Catholic thing. I kind of put the whole Catholic scene aside. Well, as it happens, uh, I, I heard through a friend of mine who ran an occult bookstore that, that there was an old Roman Catholic church in town. Now, probably none of you even heard of the old Roman Catholic church. But what it is, it's a branch of the, uh, of the church of Utrecht in Holland, which was cut away from the Vatican by various Protestant Catholic divisions back in the 1700s. And so this has existed as a whole separate parallel church to the Catholic church. The only difference is, is one, they allow a married clergy. Two, they say the Mass in the vernacular. And three, they do not accept the last two councils. In other words, Vatican I or Vatican II. So this fellow was willing to ordain me, get me ordained through the, to the priesthood in exchange for me ordaining him a witch priest. So he kind of, you know, swapped initiations. So this is a picture of me. This is actually during the ordination ceremony down. This is in St. Paul's Church. Old Catholic Church in Joliet, Illinois. There's my certificate, June 5th, 1976. I already explained about the Roman Rite of Utrecht. Uh, this is another shot of the same thing where I'm kneeling and the bishop there is about to lay hands on me. Notice his little Dagon fish hat that he's wearing. That's, that's very important. 
Uh, okay, so, and all this, you see, it was like I was gathering power. This is how I looked at it, because, see, this, this druid guy had explained to me that there's all these different currents of occult power. And I, I explain all this in my book, Lucifer Dethroned, but like for, for all of the, you know, I, you have the 13 members of Jesus' coven, right? And each one of those apostles had a certain current of power that went out from him. Like, for example, the Joannine current of power was the Freemasons. The Petrine current for Peter was the Roman church, and so on and so on and so on. And so it was like I was going around picking up these things, sort of like, you know, hash marks on my spiritual aura or whatever. So that's what I was doing. I wasn't just being, people might think, well, what kind of a wacko person is a witch and goes and is ordained a Catholic priest? Well, it's not as strange as you think, and we'll explore more about that later. Um, Anyhow, once I'd gone this far, another thing happened. Um, This same friend who stood up at my wedding as my best man, he owned this occult bookstore in Milwaukee I referred to, and he said, one day he came up to me and he says, you know, you really ought to read this book. And he handed me a copy of the Satanic Bible. Now, if you talk to anybody who's a white witch, they'll say, oh, witches aren't Satanists. Witches don't believe in Satan. We worship nature. You know, we're, we're out skipping through the woods, gathering herbs and worshiping the, worshiping the gentle goddess and the great god. You know, tra-la-la. So, you know, this was sort of odd because this guy was supposedly a Wiccan. But he said, this guy has some good ideas. So I read the book and I found out that indeed Anton LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible, the guy who was the head of the Church of Satan for many years, that he did have some interesting ideas. And you see, this is how it works. Once you set your foot in this direction, you know, you get more deceived, you get more deceived. You know, it's not like I woke up, you know, one morning when I was a a high school kid and said, I want to worship the devil. You know, it was a gradual process. And especially when you understand that the Church of Satan doesn't worship the devil. How many of you realize that? The Church of Satan does not worship the devil. They just view the devil as a symbol, as an archetype. Now, there are, of course, Satanists that do worship the devil, but that's why, basically, we call uh, the Church of Satan comic opera Satanism, because it's really not that serious a thing. Not that it's not dangerous, but compared to other forms of Satanism, it's not that dangerous. So I went through the first degree of the Church of Satan and then made it all the way up to second degree. You'll notice there, that's my certificate. I was made a warlock. In the Church of Satan, you'll notice there down at the bottom is Anton LaVey's autograph. I have the dubious distinction of having his autograph. I want to note that in the last paragraph, it says, The Church of Satan, having passed before the Council of Nine, order of the trapezoid, by all the powers of hell, so it is done. That's kind of like saying amen. Well, notice that order of the trapezoid, because that's going to be important later. This is what set me on what occultists call the left-hand path. And from then on, I was both pursuing masonry and many other things and still doing the Catholic priest thing, but I was also doing the satanic thing. Now, you might think, how could anybody do that at the same time? Well, you've got to realize, first of all, once you get into, once you get past the basic Satanism of Anton LaVey's church, you discover that in order to be a practicing satanic priest, you first of all have to be a Catholic priest. Do you realize that? Now, this is not intended as a slam on Catholicism, although there's certainly a a talk there somewhere. (laughs) But (laughs) the problem is, is that, you see, uh, the classical black mass, les messes noires in the French, is a ritual 
that's an inversion of the Catholic ceremony, the Catholic liturgy that you've all probably seen pictures of if you've not actually attended one. And except they have the cross upside down, the priest wears dark vestments, and they, they have a naked woman on the altar. And what they do is they, they, they believe that the host is really the body of Jesus. And so they abuse this host. They stomp on it, they urinate on it, they do things I won't even describe to it, and they believe by doing that, they're torturing Jesus. Now this is, this is bizarre, I know, but this is what they believe. And, and so it's really handy if you can have a priest there to do his hocus-pocus. Now how many of you realize the word hocus-pocus comes from the Latin Mass? Did you know that? It was a thing that Protestants came up with to make fun of Catholics because the words in Latin... The priest picks up the host and he says, for this is my body. And what that is is Latin is hoc est inim corpus meum. So it's like hocus pocus. And the idea that you, you, you'd say this as a priest and poof, this, priest, this piece of bread turns into the body of Jesus. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. And ditto with the wine. So anyway, then, then if you were actually a Catholic priest who was also a satanic priest, you could do the satanic mass, have the host right there, and you could abuse it to your heart's content, and thereby thinking you were somehow insulting you know, Jesus Christ up in heaven. So it's not as bizarre as you think. If you, if you look at the history of Satanism, most of the prominent Satanists were also Catholic priests or Catholic bishops. Uh, I'll just name two. Aleister Crowley, some of you may have heard of him. He was consecrated a bishop in the old Roman church. And also Anton LaVey. Believe it or not, he ended up doing the same thing I did. He got a Greek Orthodox bishop, who shall remain nameless, <clears throat> to consecrate him a bishop in return for him making the Greek Orthodox bishop a priest of Satan. So it gets kind of fuzzy here, folks. Um, now here you see me in my ceremonial magical garb. Uh, I was involved in all sorts of high-level magic, uh, including Thalamic magic, which means magic that's based on the, the works of Aleister Crowley, who was the most prominent black magician of the last century, and Enochian magic, which has nothing to do with like Enoch in the Bible. It's, it's a very complicated thing that was brought forth by Dr. John Dee, who was the original 007. Have you heard of Dr. John Dee? He was Queen Elizabeth I. This is way back 400 years ago. Queen Elizabeth's premier spy. And he was also a high-level occultist, an alchemist, and a ceremonial magician. And he would, she would send him into Europe to spy on different countries, and he would send missives back, and he'd always sign his name 007. That was his little code designation. That's where Ian Fleming got the thing for James Bond. So anyhow, see all this... Interesting trivia you're picking up here. <laughs> anyway, um, at this time I was also me a member of the Brotherhood. And that's hardcore Satanism. See, if you think of it like this, you could think of the Church of Satan as kind of like marijuana and hardcore Satanism as like cocaine or acid or heroin or something. So it's like a gateway into deeper, darker levels of the occult. And... Um, Along the way, I had to sign my name in the black book. I had to sell my soul to the devil. Um, I didn't know the devil already had my soul. <laughs> but, you know, I made a pact. And the pact was that for seven years, 
I would serve Satan faithfully, that he would have me body, soul, and spirit. He would give me anything I requested, wine, women, song, drugs, power, whatever I wanted I could have. In exchange for that, at the end of seven years, he'd get to kill me and take me to hell. What a deal. How many of you want to sign up? <laughs> you got to realize, Satanists are taught that there's this kind of, I don't know if you've heard of the, the philosopher Nietzsche, but Nietzsche taught that Christians were like slave mentality and that the true masters were the ubermen, the supermen. And so the idea was is that Christians were all losers. They would go to heaven, which is boring because you sit around all day in a and twang on a harp while sitting on a cloud and saying, oh, you're so great, oh, you're so wonderful, you know, and it's boring. That's what we were told. Whereas if you go to hell, it's like sex, drugs, rock and roll, day and night for all eternity. You get to party hardy for all eternity. And so the masters go to hell. The slaves go to heaven. The wolves go to hell. The sheep go to heaven. That's the way we looked at it. In fact, I was taught at one point, think of it this way, What's the greatest thing a Christian can do for the Lord? Think about it. To be a martyr. To give your life for the faith. Because the word martyr means witness. That's what it literally means in Greek. And at the same time, this Satanist leader said to me, what's the greatest thing a Satanist can do is kill a Christian. So it's like a symbiotic relationship, just like the wolf kills the sheep. So the Satanist kills the Christian. And the Christian gets his great blessings, and the Satanist gets his great blessings. It's win-win situation. Now, you see how twisted all this is? You see, but there's enough truth in it to sell it. Anyway, I got more and more into these things, very, very strange stuff going on. Um, at one point... I'd gone through different levels of initiation in ceremonial magic, and uh, I'd done some very powerful rituals. And I had this experience. I'd happened to go home to visit, because this time we were living in Milwaukee. And I'd gone home to visit my folks who lived in a little farm town in Iowa. And I was staying in my old bedroom. And I, for some reason, Sharon hadn't come with me. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was lifted out of my bed, carried through the roof of my uh, bedroom, and I was sailing through the sky, through the stars, to the moons of Saturn. Now, that's pretty weird. And mind you, I was not on any drugs at this point. <laughs> I, no, no funny cigarettes or recreational vegetables whatsoever. And um, I ended up landing on this moon of Saturn. And there was this obscenely bizarre-looking temple there. It was all totally black, totally out of whack. The angles were all wrong spikes sticking out of it. it looked like a loathsome diseased kind of black thing crouching on the plains of this moon and i was told to go in and i went inside and there was this this gentleman there who was my occult mentor and wearing he was wearing a white robe and he kind of glowed in the dark like obi-wan kenobi in the star wars movies you know well anyhow he says welcome to the cathedral of pain now somehow that didn't sound very good to me but i what could I do? I was out in the middle of outer space, you know. And so I walk into this thing, and it's an enormous thing like a cathedral, just huge, except instead of stained glass windows along the walls, there is these, like, imagine like giant aquariums, floor-to-ceiling aquariums, full of some kind of fluid in this green light bathing them, 
and except instead of pictures or whatever, floating in this, these two aquariums on both sides of the room were countless naked dead bodies, mutilated, horrible looking, you know, just floating there, including dead babies, dead children, dead adults, the whole bit. And I was just getting horrible feelings about this. There was this altar which was shaped like a trapezoid made out of girders in the middle of the room, and there was this huge throne made out of steel girders in the far side of this cathedral, kind of like if you were in like a Anglican or Catholic church, you know, in the rear. Well, what happened was I was told to lay down on this altar, and they tied me to this altar, and this is all happening in his dream. Was it a dream? I don't know. What happens? All these people come out in black robes and they start chanting. And for some reason they're chanting in French. And for some reason I understand French even though I don't. And they're saying all these blasphemous things against the Almighty which I won't even repeat. Just cursing over and over again. And it's like they're trying to raise a level of power. And all of a sudden this figure materializes on this throne in the rear of this huge cathedral. And it's this giant ghastly figure probably 25 30 feet high and it's like scintillating back and forth between this gorgeous looking man with long flowing hair to becoming like a winged bull to becoming like a goat with wings and a human body and it would go back and forth back and forth like scintillating so at the end this thing gets up off the throne and the chanting is getting more and more fierce and more and more frenzied and he comes down every time he steps the whole floor shakes and he comes up to where I'm laying on this altar and he has this vast hand that's like you know four feet long you know from thumb to finger and talons and he takes this finger and he pokes it right through my forehead like this talon and it like sears into my brain and I feel this like, you know, energy just burning my brain with white hot pain. And he said in this cavernous, sepulchral, Darth Vader type voice, now you belong to me, body, soul, and spirit forever. And my brain like exploded at that point and I felt myself hurtling back to earth in a fireball. And I landed in the backyard of my parents' house I'm laying there stark naked in the middle of this burning circle of fire on the lawn. And I had a scar on my forehead, which is still faintly visible to this day, 20 years later. And it was like, whoa, you know, what happened here? And I kind of staggered back into the house. I had the mother of all headaches, and I didn't know what to make of it. But from then on, that was my Luciferian initiation even though I didn't know it at the time. Soon after that, I was invited to join the Illuminati. Now, what's the Illuminati? Well, we're going to talk about it a lot tonight, but basically it's the mother of all conspiracies. And it means literally a society of illuminated men and women who have, been, who have received the light of Lucifer. Because remember, Lucifer means the light bearer, right? So anyway... I was walking around in this state of white fog in my brain and I was getting more and more tempted to do evil things, more and more, I mean, it was like whatever vestige of humanity was gradually being eaten away by this cancer of evil. So, then I got to the point of what's called the abyss, 
in high-level magic where you have to cross the abyss and then you transcend good and evil and you start, you're on the final approach to becoming a living God. And in order to do that, I had to make a choice. In the system of magic I was working, I had two choices. I could either be a werewolf or a vampire. Now, a lot of you might think, huh? You know, this guy's been, you know, eating too many stale pizzas or what? But no, I had to make that choice. And I knew people who'd been into lycanthropy, which is the technical medical term for being a werewolf, and I knew it hurt a lot. Um, I mean, think about it. I mean, you're, you know, your, your nose starts growing out and you grow like two feet taller and this and that and the other thing. So it, it's not very fun. Plus, the stuff you have to do to become a werewolf, the rituals are so unspeakable, I won't even offend your ears by telling you what they are. So I've, I'd always kind of had this fascination for vampires anyhow because they're kind of sexy and everything. you know. So I thought, okay, I can do that. I can be a vampire. So I was ultimately initiated into a vampire cult down in a Russian Orthodox splinter group in Chicago. And I started having all of these sort of semi-vampiric symptomologies like I couldn't go out in sunlight. I couldn't get within 50 feet of garlic because garlic's a blood purifier, you see. And I had to sleep in a specially designed coffin. I mean, and I'm sure you're all thinking about this, but this guy's a total wacko. Well, no. Uh, and if you look around what's happening today, I mean, I was doing this stuff in 1978. What, what's going on today is you're seeing a whole culture developing of vampires. You may have seen, like, they have s programs on them, like on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. There's, there's vampire nightclubs. There's vampire churches. They're out in the open, which was then secret 25 years ago, is now out in the open. And people ask, well, what did you do? How did you survive? Well, the funny thing is I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't even drink water. Water would just sit in my stomach like molten glass. The only thing I could do was every day I would celebrate a Catholic Mass and take communion. And then about once or twice a week, with increasing frequency, I, would, I had women in my coven who were willing to let me bite them in their neck and drink blood. And so that was how I survived for more than a year. And, I mean, I probably didn't have more than, you know, 40 calories a day. And yet I survived. It's all satanic. It's all demonic. And I believed that if I were to die, I would rise from the grave three days later as a vampire. And see, this group taught me that Lazarus was the first vampire in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the book of John, and that Jesus was initiating people into vampirism. They said, why do you think Jesus said that, you know, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will live forever? See how the devil can take something and, and twist it? Or, or, you know, Jesus' statement that um, there is some standing here right now that will, that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of heaven coming. And that enigmatic thing at the end of John's gospel, where it talks about, how, you know, what is it to you if I want the beloved disciple, who we understand to be John, to tarry until I come, meaning the second advent. And so these people actually said that the head of this whole vampire cult was the apostle John, who is now 2,000 years old, and it was a vampire. So I'm going, eh, 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 you know, <laughs> and it, it makes sense in a weird, twisted sort of way if you don't know your Bible. 
if you don't understand the scriptures. And again, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And of course, I never got any theological training. Even though I went through a Catholic college, even though I went through as part of my priesthood training and got a master's degree in Catholic theology from a Roman Catholic seminary, I never read the epistles of Paul. I knew the gospel story vaguely, and oddly enough, I was fascinated with the book of Revelations. I kept reading it and reading it and reading it, but I couldn't understand it. It was like, you know, of course, I'm not saying I understand it now completely either, amen, but I mean, it was, it was a very hard book to get at. And so I didn't know what I was doing, and I was being deceived. Moving along, I finally got involved with a group called the Ecclesia Gnostica Spiritualis, which was an old Catholic group, and the guy who was the head of that, who was probably the evilest man I've ever met, he consecrated me a bishop. Uh, and at the same time, I was raised to the 90th degree of Egyptian Freemasonry, which is the ancient and primitive rite of Memphis misery. I mean, I know you probably can't see that certificate very well, which is just as well because it's in French. Uh, but um, anyway, on that, all it's available in a better, better format that you can see, and I think it's in Lucifer Throne. Forty books, eight hundred dollar value for a hundred dollars. Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy is a deep dive into Bible prophecy. Miss the Mark is the book you give to people that you never want to take the mark of the beast. God's Warnings to America's 101 Modern Prophecies, everything from Dimitri Dudeman to rest of the most popular, the most credible prophets out there. Tribulation Secrets in Daniel is the book that you read to understand as a tribulation saint what you need to know. And then How Pre-Trib 1 You'll settle your question about the rapture. Now, you can get all five of these in a giant package. We offer them in shrink wrap sets. Shrink wrap sets of 10 for the Understand Bible Prophecy. Miss the Mark is in shrink wrap sets of 10. God's Warning is shrink wrap sets of 10. Daniel is five. How Pre-Trib 1 is five. So it's a total of 40 books valued at $800, all for a gift of just $100 at prophecyclub.com. The good news is EMP Shield has devices the military testing facility says protect 100% against EMP, solar flares, lightning, power surges, backed by a 10-year warranty and a $25,000 insurance policy. View simple video installation instructions for home, vehicles, RV. You can have electricity in a blackout. Use the promo code PROPHECY for a $50 gift card, and it helps your Prophecy Club. These days, emergency food is mostly sold out, but HeavensHarvest.com has all sorts of emergency supplies and food in stock. Their food comes in square stackable buckets, breakfast, entree, protein, fruits and vegetables, I recommend you have at least 12 months of food for each person in your family. Receive a free box of heirloom seeds when you enter the promo code STAN at HeavensHarvest.com. Promo code STAN. Terry Saka is a prophecy student, and he reads his King James Bible, and he believes in winning souls so much he is supporting the Prophecy Club so that we can win more souls. So if you want to support someone that loves prophecy and wants to win souls, I'm going to send you to cornerstoneassetmetals.com where you can get all sorts of precious metals, gold, silver, rhodium, palladium, and things like that. Cornerstoneassetmetals.com Click like, share, subscribe, and send to a friend.